Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the heart of leadership and the heart of eldership in the kingdom of God. And I think kind of understanding, if you'll be willing to take a little bit of a walk with me, I think understanding the heart behind a biblical leader uh, will help you to kind of understand when we talk about believing and belonging and the church we want to be, the, the type of church we want to be, I think it'll all make a whole lot of, of sense understanding the heart of a leader. Uh, next Sunday, we are starting a new series uh, that's going to kind of walk through uh, the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be doing that, not to freak you out, but we're going to be doing that until Christmas. So uh, there's one series between now and Christmas but you can feel a little bit better because it is a longer series. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and uh, that series is called uh, Practice Resurrection. And we're going to be looking at this idea that of, in light of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how do, how do, how do we live life? How do we, how do we practice that? And uh, Paul in the book of Ephesians is going to talk a lot about that. It's a little six-book uh, chapter of the New Testament and uh, we're just going to kind of work our way through it. And I have been uh, chomping at the bit for this series uh, really since the summer. I've been, I've been looking forward to it. So I want to invite you back for that. And we're just going to study uh, God's word tomorrow and not just read the Bible, but let the Bible read us, okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into this last week. All right, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, again for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Uh, I want to thank you uh, as, uh, for our leadership team, our elders, uh, that we're going to talk about today a little bit. Um, I want to thank you for their heart and the way that they lead us as a church. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, here's what I have found, and maybe you have too, that a good chunk of our life seems to be figuring out how the world we find ourselves in, how it works, and the place that we, the role that we play in that place. And so we've all just kind of experienced this as a nation, kind of in the post-pandemic world. How does this post-pandemic world work, and what is my place in it? We, we're, we're all kind of having uh, these thoughts, some more a couple years ago than now, but we've all had to kind of figure that out. But we all have these moments that we can look back on of transition and changing and all of that where the world just seemed totally different. This new space seemed totally different, and we had to figure out, my goodness, what what is my place here? What is my role here? How does this new, how do I operate within the context of this new world? So you might remember kindergarten, right? And day one of the experience, you walk in and you're like, man, I kind of like the cookies and milk. That's cool. But uh, I'm scared and I'm nervous and I'm trying to figure out what is my role here? How do I live in this brand new world? You may remember when you were 18 years old and went out to college and you walk into college for the first time and you're like, man, you know, kind of being free of my parents is really appealing, but uh, I am intimidated and I'm scared. How, uh, how do I make sense of this new world and what is my role in here. The first job that you had, the first time you transitioned jobs, you left a whole lot of security and you went to the new job and you're like, man, this is big and it's scary and I'm trying to figure out what my role here is and how I function in this new world. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 20 because one of the things that Jesus loved to do is he loved to challenge us on this, on our perception, first of all, of how the world works and he loved to challenge us on our role in the world, and he did this all throughout his ministry and all throughout the, his sermons, that this is how you thought things worked. And it's not that this is totally wrong, but this is how you thought things worked, but this is how they actually work in my kingdom. So he would think, say things like, man, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. 
And he said, that's, that's the way the world works. That, that's the way it should be. I, I love that. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, in my kingdom, you even want to guard against lust because lust can wreak havoc on a life. Or he would say, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. Great rule. Wonderful rule, right? Do not murder. Let's all engage in that rule. But he said, I'm telling you that anger can ruin a marriage. It can ruin a life. Keep your anger managed and under control. You've heard that it was said that if you're going to divorce, you must give your wife a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that while that is also true, marriage is sacred and marriage is important and you want to protect it. And he would often challenge people's perception of the world and how things worked. And this is exactly what he's going to do with a mom, a well-meaning mom, that comes to him with a a request. And Jesus is going to challenge our view of leadership, and he's going to challenge our our view of how the world works all at the same time. And he's going to say, man, this is how you thought leadership worked in the world, but I'm telling you, this is how it actually works. And the reason, this is why I know having done this for a long time, that every time I talk about, man, we're going to talk about leadership today, 90% of the room's like, well, this sermon's not for me. I'm not a leader. You are. I promise you, you are. You are leading someone. If you are a mom, (laughs) you're leading someone, right? Or or multiple peoples. If you're a dad, if you're an employee, you have people that look to you for leadership. So this sermon is an all play, but as Jesus lays out what a leader looks like, you're going to also determine that it's also an all play. It applies to every single one of us that want to have a great life. We want to have a great marriage. We want to have a great family, and we want to have a great church. Jesus, do you want that? Jesus is going to teach you how to do that. Now, it's going to be simple to understand it's not going to be simple to implement. Because for some of us, this is a radically different kind of way of thinking that Jesus is going to teach us. It's not a nuanced difference on how the world works. He's going to teach us that the world works in a totally different way in his kingdom than it does in, in, in the kingdom of culture. And you and I just have to decide, do we want that great marriage? Do we want that great family? Do we want a great church? Do we want a great life? And if your answer to that is yes, how's that for a buildup, right, to a, to a text? If your answer to that is yes, I want those things. I want to have a great life. Jesus is going to teach us how to do it, and here's what he says. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. I love the abruptness of Jesus. Yes, right? She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Oh, we can. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lure over them. This is just kind of how the world works. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So a mother comes to Jesus with just an itty-bitty little request, right? Itty-bitty little request. I want the number two and three positions for my sons. Hardly anything, really, but she's asking for a request, 
And, and she said, I want you to grant that my sons come into these positions. And what is good about the request, before we get to what is kind of wrong about it, what is good about the request that I like is that she does have Jesus on the throne. So it's a good starting spot. She said, I know, Jesus, that you are about to come into your kingdom. That authority is yours. Power is yours. Control is yours. You are on the throne, and she seems to understand that. Someday you're going to establish your kingdom. Now, she had no idea what that meant and what that looked like. If I were to make a guess, I would guess that Rome was occupying Jerusalem at the time, and part of what her mentality was when it comes to Jesus coming to his kingdom is that you are going to assemble an army, and we're going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem, and your kingdom in Israel is going to be established. You're going to be at the top of the food chain. And all I want, Jesus, one tiny itty-bitty little thing, is for my two boys out of these 12 yahoos that you've picked, right? Kind of the inference here, that my two boys would be on your right and be on your left. And these are the two most influential positions in the first century, right after the king. I'd like my boys, Jesus, to have some power in your kingdom. I'd like them to have some control. I'd like to, uh, for them to have the ability to make some decisions. I want them to be leaders in your kingdom. And it says in verse 24 that the other 10 were indignant. And you know why they were indignant? They didn't think of it first. They were indignant because when they heard this request, they're like, no, 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 no. We were hoping to be on the right or we were hoping to be on the left. We were hoping for some power. We were hoping for some control. We were hoping for some decision-making power. And they all had this image of Jesus on the throne, which is where he should be, but that they would be on his right or they would be on his left and they would be helping make decisions. They would have power, control, and authority, and she is just, before we bang on her too hard here, she is just articulating the way the world worked, the way our world works. In her world, the world operated through power. You needed power, control. The ability to decide was everything. She lived in this time where, like I said, Rome was occupying Jerusalem. Rome was occupying Israel, and they had all power. They had all control. They had all decision-making power. There was actually a law that said any Roman soldier could come up to you no matter what you were doing. You could be on your way to be with your dying parents. No matter what you were doing, they could come to you and force you to carry their bags for one mile. It was an actual law in Rome-occupied territories. There were a lot of rules like that. And so this is why Jesus says in verse 25, you know how the world works, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. This idea of exercising authority in the Greek, it appears in two spots in this story. It appears in one other spot where there is a weird kind of story about a man with an evil spirit who beat a false prophet naked and bleeding. Now listen, don't fight. Don't ever get into a fight. But if you ever do get into a fight and the description of that fight ends with you naked and bleeding, you lost the fight. I'm sorry, right? You, you lost the fight. But that, that's the idea of this guy. He was overpowered it is that same Greek word. And then there's one other time that this idea of lording it over them appears. And I'm going to show it to you towards the end of the message. Right? So it's, it's only like a four time, two times in this story, one really weird time where 
like I said, the guy was beaten naked and, and, and bloody, um, the, the false prophet was, and then one other time that I'm gonna show you in a minute. But what this is talking about is an abusive, overpowering, controlling person. So when they say they lord it over them, it's not talking about a, a really nice boss that means well. He's talking about someone, he's talking about Rome. Abusive, overpowering, controlling. It is a power that seeks control and seeks decision making because that is how the world works. Some of you have seen this type of power at play. You had a boss at a former place of work that, oh, he loved power. He loved control and he loved to use it to make the lives of his employees miserable. Some of you had parents that were like this. Some of you had elders at a former church growing up that were like this. You've seen the effects of this lording it over them. You've seen the effects of this in your life at work or at home or growing up or whatever the case may be. You've seen the effect of it. I'm reminded of an old story about the guy that goes to work and he gets yelled at by his boss and uh, he comes back and he ends up kind of yelling at his wife. The wife yells at the kids. The kids yell at the dog and the dog pees on the carpet, right? I think I may have added that last part, but, but it's true. Whenever you see that power out of the Lord it over them, that mentality, it spirals out of control. It becomes this abusive thing that tries to keep people down and things always deteriorate, don't they? When you have a boss like that, the office environment deteriorates. When you have a family member like that, the family deteriorates, the church deteriorates. It always, always, always goes bad. So why on earth would anyone do that? And one of my favorite passages of scripture, the apostle Paul says, man, your attitude though, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You're not lording it over anyone. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The fact of the matter is, some leaders think that equality with God is something to be grasped. You can see it in the text where Jesus talks about the Gentiles kind of lording over them. You can look at some of the language. They lord their authority over people. They exercise authority over them. These are the words that describe God's job. And there are some people that just believe it's called a God complex, that they are the God of the universe and everyone exists to serve them. But it's funny that God, in the way that he does his job, God doesn't do his job the way we would do God's job. I know that's just try to follow the circular reasoning, right? God doesn't do his job the way I would do his job. Why? Because God is holy and perfect and righteous, and I'm not. So when I adapt a God complex, and I say, man, I am in power, I am in control, I am the ruler of the day. When I adapt a God complex, it goes south because I am not holy and righteous and perfect, and God is. So when I try to be the God of my universe, it always, always, always deteriorates. It always does. God exercises his authority in a perfect way, and I exercise it in an imperfect way. And maybe you've known leaders like that too. They're like, man, the way, they, they've got like a God, they, they think they're God. And that everyone exists to serve them. And so sometimes it comes out as anger, or sometimes it comes out as harsh or controlling. This is exactly what was happening in Rome in Jesus' day. He's like, these people think they're God. 
They think they're God. And because they're imperfect, and because they're sinful, because they're not holy, it comes out in these really, really abusive, unkind, harsh ways. And it always does. It always deteriorates. It goes badly in your marriage when one person in a marriage thinks they're God. It goes badly. When one person in your office thinks they're God, or in your family, or in the church, we are not equipped to be God. You know who's equipped to be God? God. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the Philippians text will go on to say that the one human being who made the claim to be God, Jesus Christ, you know how he exercised his authority? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, and he went to a cross as an example for us. I think verse 26 has one of the greatest four lines ever. Not so with you. right? When it comes to the Gentiles who lord it over, who think they're God, who control other people, he says, not so with you. And he's just gotten done talking about the leader structure of the day and how abusive it was and how controlling it was, how people were grabbing power and grabbing control. And Jesus redefines leadership in the kingdom. Look at what he says. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, it's not about you lording it over people or exercising your authority or being in charge or being served. In the kingdom of God, it's about serving others, helping them, ministering to them. And the question is, why is that little phrase in there? Not so with you. What is different about the Christian ethic when it comes to leadership that is so different than the cultural ethic of gain power, gain control, become little G God and control everybody? What is so different about the Christian ethic? Here's what is so different about the Christian ethic. You and I, hopefully, we know who God is. We know who God is. We know that he's on the throne. We know his son is there. We know who God is. So we don't have this magnetic temptation to become God. We know who God is. We worship him every Sunday. We worship him hopefully every day. So we know who God is. So we don't feel the need to become gods of our universe, hopefully. Every once in a while, you might kind of be like, I think I'm kind of buying into it. Maybe as I was talking, you're like, I think I might be acting like God in my marriage or or in my family, or at work, or whatever. Every once in a while, and, and then we repent of it, but we understand who God is, and so we don't have the same desire. We understand God is on the throne, and so what it does is it frees us to what Jesus is describing here. It frees us for service, for care, for ministering to others. It frees us up from no longer feeling like we should be God, because we know who God is. Is. Now, I'm afraid maybe it sounds like that I am saying that Christians, shouldn't, Christians should reject all leadership, all power, and all control. And I'm not saying that. And more importantly, Jesus isn't saying that. We need Christians in politics. Somebody say amen, right? We need that. We need Christians to be promoted at work to be managers and leaders and all of that stuff. We need churches to have incredible eldership that I'm going to get to in a moment. But there is a way to lead. There is a way to lead that places yourself on the throne in your own sinful state and to give yourself all power and control over people. And there is a way to lead that says, no, 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 Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. So I can be the type of leader that loves. I can be the type of leader that serves. I can be the type of leader that gives. There's two different ways you can lead. Where you're on the throne, 
like all power and all authority in this little office or in this family, and this all power and authority is mine. Serve me, right? It always goes badly. But there is a way to lead that keeps Jesus on the throne and says, I can be a servant leader. That's what my alma mater that I'm going to talk about in just a minute. One of the things that was ingrained to me is their mission statement is raising up servant leaders in the church and in the world. I love that. Servant leaders that understand that, yes, you have a measure of control and a measure of decision-making power, but you are first and foremost a servant. Someone who loves, someone who gives, someone who makes a difference. There are two different ways to lead. And if you've ever had the opportunity to serve under a leader that truly views him or herself as a servant, you know what a rare and blessed opportunity that is. When I was growing up, cutting my teeth into ministry, um, I had a man named Larry Carter. Changed my life forever, meeting him. He's the president of my alma mater. He was teaching uh, my preaching classes before he became the president. But Larry, when I was growing up, he exemplified servant leadership to me. I worked for him for a short period of time, and everyone knew that the buck stopped with Larry, that he made a lot of decisions, that he had a lot of responsibility, but every single day, and I'm not kidding, in the time that I worked there, this is without exception. Every single day, he would stop by your office. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything that you need? And if there was, actually I could, he'd get it. The president of the college, would go and get it for you. When it came time to set up a room, he didn't magically have appointments, right? When it came to set up a room, he was there running the vacuum, setting up tables. When it came to lunch, he wouldn't just sit with important people. He'd sit with anyone, even underlings like me. And there was a way to lead that communicates. There is a way to lead that communicates, hey, I'm better than you, and you exist to serve me. And there's a way to lead that says, I may have more responsibility, but I'm a servant. I'm in this with you, and we're on the same team. Now, you might be saying, I thought you were talking about eldership today. You haven't mentioned eldership once, and that's right. I talked about the four instances of this lording it over people. uh, Two times in the story that I already shared with you, one where the guy's beaten, naked, and bloody, right? A really odd story, but it's in there. The fourth time, is in relationship to eldership. It's in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, and it says this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you. There's our word. Not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So he says to the leaders of this first century church, listen, especially in the culture you live in, there's a temptation with any kind of power to lord it over people, to demand to be served, to demand to be in charge, to demand to be king of the castle, lord of the manor, whatever you want to say And because of that temptation, you have to be diligent as a Christian leader to keep Jesus on the throne. It is paramount that you keep 
Jesus and the throne. You keep the one who, you keep Jesus as the one who should be served, the one who should be in charge because he is holy and righteous and perfect. And quite frankly, he's good at it and I'm not and you're not because we're sinful. And it frees you up, he says to those first century leaders. It frees you up to be, I love the phrase, eager to serve. He says, you be eager to serve. We already have someone on the throne. We don't need you on the throne. Your family has someone on the throne, Jesus. You don't need another person on the throne. Your church has someone on the throne. You don't need another person on the throne. We have Jesus on the throne. And it frees us up knowing that, that he's holy and good and in charge and Lord. It frees us up to be servants. And I want to brag for just a moment because I think our elders are tremendous at this. I really do, our, our elders. I work here all week long, and our guys are engaged on ministry teams, service around this place, serving our student ministry, praying for us all, visiting hospitals. Our eldership loves to serve. They understand who's on the throne, and it's not them, and it's not me. They understand that. And so it has freed up our leadership team to be servants. And I can tell you, as we've been talking about believing and belonging, and the type of church that we want to be on. This last Sunday of it, um, I, I just want to tell you, this heart of your leadership team has come out in the way that we've talked about this. Because here's what is true. If you're here today, and you think just like I do, right? If you think just like I do, and you have the same doctrine that I do, the same background that I do, the same type of family that I have, and we are so similar, I want to love and serve you, and our team wants to love and serve you. But if you're here today and you don't think like I do and you have a different background, believe in a little bit of a different doctrine, grew up a little bit of a different way, guess what? I still want to love and serve you. And our leadership team still wants to love and serve you. And we are so happy that you're here. And so trying to figure out what it means to believe and what it means to belong, as these conversations have unfolded, this, I want you to just hear, this is the heart of the team that whoever God has entrusted to us within the walls of this building and within the context of our church family, we want to serve them. We want to love them. We want this to be a place where they belong and that we journey together. And that is the heart of our leaders. That man, if you're just like us, we want to love and serve you. If you're not just like us, we want to love and serve you. That means we want to love and serve, I guess, everyone. And it's true. And that's what he would say to the eldership of the first century church. That he would, that's what he would say to the eldership of our church is serve. Keep him on the throne. Keep Jesus on the throne and you serve. But I think what he would say to the congregation, and this is the week where we kind of turn in people that kind of sound like our eldership qualifications. And we ask you to, have been asking you to think and pray about who might fit into that category. Is that he says to the local churches, would you continue to put people in your eldership that are just like that? There are people that have Jesus on the throne where Jesus is in charge because he's better at it and they, they just want to serve him. They want to serve people and they want to love well. And if you know somebody that looks and sounds like that, we want their name so we can begin a process. Um, we have uh, uh, sheets of paper with all the qualifications listed uh, on, on that sheet out in our lobby if, if you want to read through that and pray about it this week. And the reason this is so important is again and again, Jesus will teach us anything that you want to be great, literally any single thing, starts with a servant mentality. A mentality where Jesus is on the throne, 
because he's better at it, and I am his servant and the servant of his people. Literally anything great starts with that. You want to have a great family? It starts with you serving. You want to have a great marriage? It starts with you serving. You want to have great friendships? It starts with you serving. You want to have a great church? It starts with you serving. You want to have a great company? It starts with you serving. You want to have a great life? Who doesn't want to have a great life? You want to have a great life? It starts with you serving. It starts with you serving. Greatness comes when we serve. And here's what I learned a long time ago. As leaders go, so goes the church. So a serving eldership will lead to a serving church, and a serving church will lead to a great church. And so you may wonder, well, how on earth could I possibly know if somebody would be a great servant, if they would keep Jesus on the throne and view themselves as his servant and the servant of his people? How could I possibly know that? I am so glad you asked that question. It's not a magic eight ball thing. Would they be good? You know, looks about right. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. It's not that at all. The qualifications for eldership on the sheet out there actually lay this out. There's like, if you wanna know if somebody has a service mentality and somebody has Jesus on the throne, if you wanna, if you wanna know that, he says, first of all, look, look at their business, their dealings with outsiders. If you look at the way someone does business, you will determine very quickly whether or not they have a service mentality. Has anyone eaten out recently, right? You can tell very, very quickly, very quickly, when you are at a restaurant, whether or not this restaurant has a service mentality. So he says, man, look at the way that they do business. He says, look at their money, look at the way they spend money, and you will very quickly determine whether or not they have a serving others mentality. You said, look at their family and look at their marriage. Man, woo, yeah, yeah, right? It's, it's easy to tell when you look at someone's family, whether or not they believe Jesus is on the throne and they exist to serve other people. So there's lots of ways that you can determine that, but here's what is true. This isn't just true for them. It is true for us. Sometimes the church is like, man, we got to get people in place to like serve. So like, I don't have to. Um, and, and that's, that's not the, as the leader goes, so goes the church. So serving leaders lead to a serving church that leads to a great church. And so this is true for all of us. I know I've already said it a bunch, but I want to say it one more time. Greatness is achieved when we serve. And so if you want to have a great church, one of the great things you can do is every time that you come here, it's not what can I receive, it's what can I give. It's who can I serve? Who can I love? Who can I give to? And greatness just comes. The same is true for your marriage. This is why Paul will say in Ephesians that we're going to study later, Paul will say at the very beginning of the marriage section, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is submission? It is the voluntary, joyful laying down of one's life. It is not the forced laying down of one's life. That's subjugation, right? The joyful, voluntary laying down of one's life for the good of another person. It's serving. It's serving. So it's true in marriage. It's true in family. It's true in church. It's true for a life. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. I thank you for our leaders and how, what a great example they are of what we're talking about today. And I just pray as we, 
move forward as a church, as we continue forward, that we would continue to identify people that have you on the throne because you are holy and righteous and perfect and you should be on the throne. I sh- Heaven knows I should not be on the throne. We should not be on the throne. But you should be. And when you are, and I worship you, and I love you, and I obey you, this other beautiful thing happens. It frees me up from lording it over and having all this authority, this Messiah complex, this God complex. Because I'm not good at being God, but you are. And so may we keep you on the throne and may we be freed up to serve and to love and to give because that's where greatness is found in our marriages, in our church, in our life, in our work. Greatness is found when we serve. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. It is really interesting, you know, what we were talking about, that this kind of God complex that we sometimes get in our sinful state, God did not operate the way that we operate as God, right? God showed us another way. Jesus showed us another way where he lays down his life. He sacrificed his life in this huge moment of service so that we could see what greatness looks like. And so right now we're gonna receive communion together. And as we receive communion, you'll have a cup that represents his body and some juice that represents his blood. And as you're looking at, this is greatness. This is what greatness looks like. And he sets that example for us so that we can leave this place and say, man, I wanna be like Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And may we be great as he was great. Because even from the throne, Right? He, he, he didn't have that God complex of, you know, even though he was God. Instead, he shows us another way of what power is at its best, what authority is at its best, it's serving. And so we're going to receive communion, and then I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Greatness is achieved when we serve. May we leave this place and live like Jesus lived and serve the way that he served, love the way that he loved and give the way that he gave. We stand, we're gonna close with my song and we'll be in uh, Ephesians 1 next Sunday. So I wanna welcome you back to begin practicing resurrection. God bless you guys. Let's close with one last song.